respect to these, uh, to these sacraments or to these institutions um, that is meant to be a witness, that is meant to communicate something. It's largely meant to communicate a truth outwardly that is inwardly what we can relate to. Uh, specifically on the sacraments, uh, Augustine, the uh, church father, defined them as an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. In each case, the sign is a visible display that points to a reality different from and more significant than itself. So there's a truth. When we participate in these institutions, the aim of all of them, whether it's baptism, the Lord's Supper, family dedication, uh, or others, that there is a, an aim that is shared across them, which is to outwardly proclaim a truth that is uh, internally present and realized. Now, I do want to pause because already, even in our time together, um, I don't want to get too much into the minutia of things, but I've already used a, a varied amount of names and terminologies, uh, things like institutions, ordinances, sacraments. Um, and, and similarly, we're not going to go too much into the academics uh, of it, although it is a very important conversation. Um, but there's a lot of views around um, a theological concerns and views around uh, the Lord's Supper, things like transubstantiation, consubstantiation, or memorialism, um, all these kind of notions. We're really not going to dive into the academics this morning, again, even though they're important doctrines and they're worth your time considering, um, but rather my hope is this morning is through the consideration of themes across scripture, um, really, um, rather than coming to an enlightened academic stance, we can actually come to a better applicational stance um, that we can respond by getting to participate in the Lord's Supper together in a renewed or improved appreciation um, for the meal. And again, to uh, frame that conversation, I wanted to thematically look over all of scripture um, and really focus in on uh, the theme of meals. Um, really just five highlighted meals, um, starting in the very beginning and taking us all the way across to the very end. The first meal um, that we run into in scripture um, is the meal of the uh, fall, the fruit that is eaten. Um, this happens all the way back in Genesis 3. In the first two chapters of Genesis, we've run into God creating all of the earth, God creating man and woman distinct with purpose uh, and identity, um, giving them the purpose of stewarding after his creation. Um, and then we also see that they get to experience his presence and his provision directly. And he's done all this and only restricted them of one thing, and that is the eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But by the, third, by the third chapter, we've run into this first meal, the meal of the fall, this one command they couldn't uphold out of sin. It is that our first parents, Adam and Eve, ate that fruit. This is the first sin, or as theologians call it, the original sin to which we all uh, carry the guilt for. Um, this is the first time that in God's perfect creation, now there is a separation uh, between following God's will and following God's ways. Eve, after listening to the deceiver, takes the fruit and eats it. Then she immediately passes it to Adam, who's been standing right there by her side, not doing anything to stop her. And then her passive, cowardly husband takes the fruit and eats it as well. That's the story we all know. My interpretation added a little bit. But this is the sad story of which now sin comes into existence. Separation um, between the divine and his creation uh, now comes with a consequence. God could have said, I'm done with y'all. Um, I'm going to pass you over to the judgment of death and I'll start over with somebody else. But no, in his grace and his mercy, he knew this was coming all along. And so he caringly 
disciples or disciplines them. Um, he first by providing them clothing, he weaves them clothes, and then he communicates to them um, that, yeah, with your sin, there is consequences. But even in the communication of those consequences, he intercedes and says, but there will be one who will come, who will put it all right again. Essentially, he says, but um, even in you messing this up, I knew it all along, and one day there will be a Savior to come. We know that to rightly be Jesus. I'll put it in just a summary form. The first meal is a mess, but the good news is Jesus is going to clean up after us. We learn from the first meal that we have sinned and are in need of a Savior, and that Savior will come in the person of Jesus to put right all that we have gotten wrong. But fast forward a little bit, that's the first meal. So fast forward a little bit in the history of God's people from Adam and Eve. We have this descendant, Abraham. We have God uh, speaking specifically to Abraham, uh, establishing him as the father of his nation, his people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish uh, people. Uh, He's calling them to be set apart. He's going to pour out their favor on them so that they are a blessing to those who are around them. Uh, He's going to call them to obedience. And even despite their over and over lack of obedience, and in fact being marked by disobedience, he still chooses them to be a part of this remnant of which to say in one of their descendants and the descendants of Abraham that then this one that was promised to come as savior will come out of the line of Abraham. Then a little bit further, a foreshadowing event then that comes up about this Messiah comes now as we enter in, leave Genesis and we enter into the book of Exodus um, where God's people find themselves in Egypt because a famine had driven them out of the land and they were um, uh, then going under Joseph's leadership and finding a supply of food in Egypt. They grow from a small people to a very large people. In fact, now if not a million, maybe even millions of people, um, then comes along a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph or did not know God. In fact, he actually believed that he should be God and that there's no other that should be worshipped. And fearing the growth of the Hebrews, he then enslaves them. And so enters the scene now with Moses. Moses declares a word of the Lord to Pharaoh, declaring that he should repent and let his people um, go from the land so that they can return back to their own land um, and exit out of this time of slavery. And furthermore, Moses communicates that there will be consequences to Pharaoh if he doesn't choose to obey. Pharaoh calls his bluffs. He doesn't think this is going to be the case. And so a series of plagues come as that consequence and it affects all the people and affects all the land. And yet, uh, even after these first series of plagues, it's not that Pharaoh then softens his heart. Rather, scripture tells us he hardens his heart. He does not repent. He does not obey the Lord. and He does not let the people go. So Moses then warns of a final plague, one even worse than before. One where every firstborn in every household of Egypt will perish that night with the exception of anybody who takes the household who in faith of their deliverance uh, takes a lamb without blemish, sacrifices it, and takes the blood from that sacrifice and paints it over the door, the door frame of the entryway to the household. Essentially, all these families that are going to be demonstrating such a faith through sacrifice, um, then when the angel uh, of judgment comes to enact God's judgment upon the people, instead of entering that house and taking the firstborn, he will pass over that house and pass over that hand of judgment. And so thus then comes our second meal into the scene, the Passover meal. Because see, every year after this event, uh, the people of God, the Hebrew people, um, remembered this uh, Passover event by significating with a feast. They had a feast to then celebrate every year um, with, that was 
had very specific instructions about how it was supposed to happen. That's found in Exodus 12. Um, and, it's, and specifically, it was supposed to remind the people of Israel how they were saved in one moment of history and how they will be saved to come in all of eternity. Now, this is a reflection on one moment, looking forward to a salvation in eternity. Uh, it was designed to, say, to be celebrated every year so that they were hopeful for a coming future Messiah. One that we know is Jesus. The Apostle Paul made it abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, when he just simply says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb without blemish. Um, and then by the shedding of his blood uh, and our response in faith, that it is God's wrath that then gets to pass over us. So again, the first meal separated us, showed our separation. The second meal shows us that he'll save us from that separation and a one day coming Messiah, a Messiah who we know is Jesus. Adam and Eve ate that first meal in sin and disobedience and unbelief. God's people are to eat in obedience and belief and faith of a savior coming for their sin. And for a few thousands of years, this is exactly what the people of God do. They celebrate this meal just as it was prescribed in Exodus 12, um, just like they were supposed to in their tradition, uh, until thousands of years later, one man comes into the scene and mixes it all up and changes the very nature of that meal. This is the third meal that we are going to consider because, again, fast-forwarding in Israel's history, now we're in the time of the New Testament. Um, Jesus has been born. Uh, he has lived a sinless lifestyle. He is now in his 30s, beginning about, about a three-year ministry journey, um, in which during that uh, ministry journey towards uh, the end, he, he gathers all the disciples together. Um, he takes the role um, as the head of the household, and he leads them through the Passover meal. Um, this is recorded in all of the Gospels, um, but is most specifically with detail recorded um, in Luke's Gospel in chapter 22. He is leading them through this prescribed meal, just like they've always heard, and then all of a sudden at the end, he turns it all on its head and he adds his own words um, to this meal. He takes two common elements um, of this meal and he makes it very clear that he is the fulfillment of these elements in this meal. In essence, he, he says, this wine is my blood, which will be shed for you. This bread is my body, which will be broken for you. It is my body and my blood that will be given over uh, and sacrificed so that you may enter into this new covenant, the one that the prophet Jeremiah had predicted long ago. Essentially, Jesus is saying, all these meals you've been eating for thousands of years that has been pointing towards a coming Messiah, Jesus says, I don't want you to miss it. I am that Messiah. I have come to fulfill what you're looking forward to. For all the forgiveness of sins, for all those who believe, will be found by my work, and thus then you'll have those reconciled to God. And exactly after that meal, this is what plays out. Jesus does go to the cross as the sacrificial lamb. His body is broken. His blood is shed. Um, this is done like the Passover lamb in the place of our sins. Um, this is known as substitutionary atonement. Essentially, we no longer have to face uh, the consequences of our sin because they fall upon the Passover lamb on Christ himself. And yet he doesn't stay dead, as we know, as recorded in scripture, um, but he raises three days later. He raises so that it can validate the sacrifice that was, that was made um, and so that it can uh, communicate the conquering of death and the promise of life and essentially fulfilling the long-awaited promises of all these meals leading up to it. It is that Jesus that has come to fulfill that as the sacrifice. 
He then shows himself over, after coming back from the grave, he shows himself to many over about 40 days um, um, before then ascending um, back up to the Father, uh, waiting in his heavenly seat until one day he will return. And he leaves us with that promise. And immediately after that, the early church began to practice then the fourth meal um, from this institution that God, that Jesus had enacted. This is recorded as early as even in the book of Acts, that the early church was gathering together upon these words, this new command, and celebrating a meal together. Again, it was the first meal that separated us from God. It was the second meal that pointed towards our need for a Savior. And it's the third meal revealing Jesus as that Savior. And thus, then, we end up with his fourth meal, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper, again, is a calling back to the work now that he's done. Just like the Passover was a looking forward to a Messiah's work, now the, the, uh, the communion is now looking back to that same sacrifice that he has done. His meal is outlined uh, in, in form the words we typically use when we lead through it uh, here at this church uh, by the Apostle Paul uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 23 of that chapter, it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. At the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so now, now that we've come to our fourth meal, the Lord's Supper, um, I do want to spend a little bit more time because we normally just cover that section when we're participating in it, but actually there's, there's great strategy that Paul is imploring, teaching about um, the Lord's Supper and reminding the church in Corinth, the Corinthian church, uh, about the Lord's Supper because he's actually communicating this in a larger framework, um, highlighting some priorities, again, of this meal. Of this meal. And so I want to take a moment and I want to highlight some of those comments that are in that next bigger scope of, um, of context. Um, he is at, Paul is adamant about the purpose of this meal is just like the purpose of all the meals previous. The number one priority here is that we cannot miss Jesus. We cannot miss Jesus' role here in his supper, the Lord's Supper. This meal is entirely about Jesus, just like all the other meals before were entirely about Jesus and his coming. And I think, again, if we approach this meal and don't consider Jesus, we've done so in error. And we'll talk more about that. Paul actually illustrates this a little bit more clear to them, um, commenting on idols in chapter 10, essentially making um, the claim that they, while the Corinthians are still caught up with them themselves wanting to be gods or at least them creating these little gods, um, that's just a, a misnomer here because again, uh, it's not their work that brings anything to merit. Um, it's only the work of the true God uh, who welcomes them in. Again, back in 1 Corinthians 10 in chapter, uh, in chapter 10 in verse 14, it says, therefore my beloved free, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing is that we bless. It is not a participate. Is that not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Again, this is the first priority to take away. This is about Jesus. We can't miss it here. This is about the work He did. It's about Him as the Savior offering us salvation. Our participation in this meal is only a response of our faith. It is by no merit to ourselves that we earn our participation in this. We only participate because he's done the work. 
Let's again say it as we don't participate on our merit, but we only participate because he's invited us to the table. This is why the Apostle Paul writes through the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And so to repeat, we don't earn our seat at the table. We only sit there and eat because we've been invited to come. The first thing to, for us to do when it comes to the consideration of the Lord's Supper is to stop and ask ourselves this same question. Who is Jesus? Are we rightly seeing who Jesus is? Do I believe in all the things that he did and all the promises he's offered through his sacrifice that I may have life and salvation? Have I accepted the gift in the same way that I'm about to accept these elements passed to me? Is this something I only know or is this something I only do as a a ritual or is this something that I do as a satisfied experience um, going and obeying the commands of our Lord? And so I would start and ask, I think it's appropriate. This is why when we share the Lord's Supper, we always make sure that we stop and invite. That before we take these elements, the first question is, where do you stand in a right relationship with a holy God? Do you believe And I would say that if now, if you have any doubt or if there's any shred of when you've paused and thought for a moment, I don't think I've stood in a right relationship with him. I don't know if I've asked him um, to forgive of my sins, that I've confessed those sins to him, asked him to forgive them and accepted that free gift of salvation. And to which you'd say, then yeah, this meal isn't for you in this state um, because it's, again, it's all about a testimony. And if you don't believe it, then what are you testifying to? But more than that, it doesn't have to not be appropriate as a meal right now. I would say more importantly, we would love to celebrate with you of if that is your state today, then we would say, well, then if you know you need that salvation, then stop and ask the Lord for it. It's the gift he wants to give. Put your faith in Christ for the first time and then participate in this meal in the right way, the way that it's intended intended in a way that we would love to celebrate with you. Again, the priority number one is we can't miss Jesus Priority number two is then also that we can't miss each other. Apostle Paul makes this also a point. Um, in, again, back in chapter 10 and starting in verse 17, it says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread, of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. You hear the communal nature here? This idea of we but one. It's one bread, but we are all partaking of the one. Again, this is, uh, communion is not to be taken in isolation. It's supposed to be taken together. Um, just like our Christian faith is not called out to be lived in isolation. It's not that we have a private inner faith that we only commune to the Father about and we don't share externally. No, we're called to a, a communal faith in the same way that this is called a communal meal. Hence why oftentimes we call it communion. Because we are not just partaking of the one bread as one, but we are partaking of the one bread as many. Because there is an aspect of we are not only witnessing to the work of Christ in me or in you, you're also witnessing to the work of Christ in everybody who takes the meal with you. This is why I think Paul is referencing the sacrificial system here. Um, Because eating of the sacrificial food was the way of participating in the sacrifice. In fact, as one of the priest's main roles um, to affirm the acceptable nature of the sacrifice by consuming and appropriately sharing the provision with others. It affirmed the appropriate nature and it shared with everybody to participate in the sacrifice. And that's why when we take the Lord's Supper together, um, we are rightly identifying our own need for a savior, but we are rightly testifying to one another that we are in equal need of the same saving. There's nobody higher and there's nobody lower. 
If Christ's sacrifice is good enough for me, it's good enough for you. There's no one who earns it in the first place. We are all on the same page. We are all equally dependent on his forgiveness. And so again, I think when we eat this meal, if Christ can save you, then you then need to proclaim that Christ is sufficient to save anyone. And unfortunately, this is what the Corinthian church was missing. Because again, in this meal, this meal with looking at our Savior and celebrating it of all those of whom he had saved. Priority one, we can't miss Jesus. Priority two, we can't miss each other. But the Corinthian church here is a divided church. And they're missing these first two priorities. They're making factions. They're actually propping up some and lowering down others. Again, back in 10, uh, Apostle Paul of 1 Corinthians 10 addresses it in verse 20. When you come together, it, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. The Corinthian church is messing it up. Um, They've forgotten these two points. Again, it's all about Jesus, and we're all united under our need of him. And the church, however, was thinking of themselves first and only of their wants and wishes. And even moreover than that, second, they were forgetting others, and actually worse, not just in forgetting others, they were judging others and setting up a system to lower some so that some could be propped up. A gathering meal, Apostle Paul simply says, done this way is not the Lord's Supper. You're not remembering Christ first, and you're not remembering your equal status amongst others for his salvation. And we need to also then hold to that same uh, cautionary tale. We can't just be too judgy on uh, the church of Corinth, lest we be guilty of the same thing that they are doing in judging each other. And this brings us to priority number three. There is consequence to missing priorities one and two. It doesn't just go unspoken. In fact, again, back in chapter 11 and verse 27, Paul continues, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. We talked again a little bit about this in the podcast and um, this idea again of what does it take, what does it mean to take this meal in an unworthy manner? Um, And there's some varying different views of this, but for starters, it seems like Paul is clear that at least one uh, descriptor of somebody who's taking it in an unworthy manner is that they are neglecting uh, to do the diligence of introspective work first. This is the fault of of the Corinthians. They weren't judging themselves, they were instead judging others. Warren Wearsby on his commentary, commentary put it like this. The Corinthians neglected to examine themselves, but they were experts at examining everybody else. Like one of the keys to rightly take this meal is self-examination. This is why we don't fence the meal. If you, any of y'all grew up in Baptist churches or churches with that tradition, you don't have to come forward and have an elder stand before you and have to tell you that you are in right standing to be able to take of the meal or not. Um, because you see, the Apostle Paul doesn't put the onus on the elders. He doesn't put the onus on the pastor. He doesn't put the onus on whoever's up here leading the communal service. The onus of here for self-introspection is yourself. 
And so we don't, we don't guard that. We know that that is not our responsibility, but we know ultimately in the presentation of this meal, we want to make sure it's communicated clearly. God's word says it's your responsibility. So we're supposed to examine our standing before the Lord and understand our need alongside all believers for a savior. I think, again, this is why Paul uses this double meaning of the body here in verse 29. Commenting on understanding or discerning the body, he says, examine yourself in a correct way in lieu of the body of Christ sacrificed for you and the body of Christ that is his church that we have all responded to him as in need of a savior. And again, this isn't to be taken lightly. So some stark words in verse 30. That apparently for them and then appropriately for us, it may be that then a mark of somebody who's not taking this meal appropriately, who hasn't done the self-introspection, is that then that's the reason why that they are sick or that they are weak or that they even die. Now, it isn't that then we can prescribe this that way. It isn't then that we say, well, you're sick, so you must have unrepented sin. But it can't mean that we dismiss because God's words clearly tell us that that could be a consequence that comes. Again, it would be a lot easier, especially from a behavior modification thing, to be able to come up here and say, hey, guys, y'all really need to take this seriously, or you may get sick and die. And then it might bring the onus of the room up a little bit. It reminds me of the stories of Ananias and Sapphira back in Acts chapter 5, where they are uh, at a place where all of the early church is coming together and gathering an offering and giving, and they withhold from the Lord and lie and misrepresent um, what they have to offer. And what does God do? God strikes them dead. It's not that everybody who withholds from uh, the offering plates that were going through there, I didn't see anybody perspire yet. I guess we're still looking. Again, we can probably say it in jest. I bet we'd take it a whole lot seriously if the guy who passed you that basket didn't put anything in and then all of a sudden he died. I bet you'd be like, yep, there's my check and my credit cards and my car keys. What else? Okay, I'm good. I want to make sure this is right. We can't prescribe it that way, but we can't ignore that God takes sin seriously. And that there is consequences for our sins. Yes, he will save us of all sins one day. But for now, already not yet, we have consequences of our sins. And apparently a consequence of taking this inappropriately can have some significant consequences for our sins. So what do we do? We need to, again, rightly inspect and respond to our Savior alongside of a church, repenting altogether, desperate for his forgiveness. This is why I think, again, Paul ends this section in talking about judgment and making clear um, two quick things, because he's not talking about um, an eternal judgment um, when it comes to the consequence of the sins. Um, because you know, in Hebrews 12, um, the author says in verse five and six that God disciplines his children because he loves him. And this idea of discipline is being introduced. That's why also in Romans 8, 1, uh, Apostle Paul says, there is, no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And this is the beauty even of this institution, that even when we get this meal wrong, Jesus is still there as our Savior for those who believe. Paul will continue in Romans 8 by saying in verse 39 that nothing can separate us from the love of God. So this is the fourth meal. And this is a meal that's done in temporary nature that we got even in Paul's instruction of it. It is something that we do in remembrance of what Christ did. And one day we won't need to remember it, that sacrifice, because we will be present with his glory in a final and fifth meal, the wedding feast of the Lamb. 
Again, to recap our meals, we got the first meal that was eaten by Adam and Eve in sin and defiance of God. We have the second meal, the Passover, eaten in faith of the coming of Jesus, the Lamb of God, to shed his blood and to take away our sins. We have the third meal. We have Jesus fulfilling the Passover at the Last Supper, instituting communion. And then we have the fourth meal, the Lord's Supper, communion, where Christians are eating in unity together, remembering his work on the cross and awaiting his return because one day we'll have his return and we will be welcomed in to the fifth meal, the wedding feast of the lamb. It's interesting that the Bible begins with the meal and ends with the meal. In Genesis, we ran into a meal that was eaten apart from God. And in Revelation at the end, we'll run into a meal eaten in the very presence of God, Jesus Christ. There will be a final judgment of the world for those who are saved. God's wrath will pass over them And then those that are saved will get to participate in a final meal that's described in Revelation 19, a meal that we no longer have to worry about messing up. We no longer have to worry about taking unworthy because God makes us worthy, that we will take in his glory as he has perfected and glory in us as co-heirs of him and as sons and daughters. That's to come. And that's partly also what we should be doing while we still take this fourth meal is being excited for that meal um, that is coming. But for now, as we uh, close out our time, let's take the fourth meal together. I'm going to invite the ushers uh, to come and begin to um, pass the elements. Um, a little bit of housekeeping with these trays, especially if you're new here or haven't joined us with it. It's easier um, to take this tray uh, and then pass it to the next person. And then while that person is holding it, go ahead and take your um, bread and uh, your cup. It's a little harder if you try to accept the tray, take the bread and the cup, and then have to balance act to pass it over. Um, also, just to let you know, anybody who has sensitivities, these are gluten-free um, uh, uh, crackers that we're going to be partaking together. But while they're passing and while the band is leading us, um, I do think it's appropriate, obviously, that we take a moment and that we reflect. And I think it's appropriate to examine ourselves and to ask that question, where do we stand before a righteous God? And again, if there's any doubt, I would just say believe on him for salvation today. I think it's appropriate to remind ourselves, where do we stand before a body of Christ? We all stand and testify ready to say that the sacrifice is good enough for me and it's good enough for everybody else in this room. Because we all stand in equal status of a need of a savior. So that's all we need to testify, that his work is good enough to save all who believe. So remember his sacrifice for you. And here in a moment, we'll come back together and we'll eat this and we'll eat this uh, together expectant for the Lord to come again.